I believe there's a 99% Invisible podcast about this as well. If we're allowed to plug another podcast. Fantastic. Plugging the competition, Lindsay. <laughs> This is Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Jeff Lynn. I'm an economist at the Philly Fed. I'm Greg Schill. I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa. Hey, Greg. Hey, Jeff. On today's show, we're continuing our series about work from home and its impact on cities. Our guest today is Lindsay Relihan. Lindsay is assistant professor of economics at the Daniel School of Business at Purdue University. She's recently released a paper with James Duguid, Brian Kim, and Chris Wheat called The Impact of Work from Home on Brick and Mortar Retail Establishments, Evidence from Card Transactions. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to have you here. So this is a really interesting and timely paper, but I want to kind of start by kind of giving some baseline context. So what is the state of retail in cities? What are the main factors that you think are relevant for understanding the outlook for urban retail? Well, the... COVID period has been extremely disruptive for retail in a couple of ways, but the first order effect is clearly how people have changed their organization of their daily lives, particularly with respect to to work from home and how that's fundamentally a separation for a lot of people in the location from where they work and where they live. And both research and policy and city officials have rightly sort of focused first and foremost on the kinds of real estate tied to those two locations because of that fundamental tie. Thinking about the office market where a bunch of workers have transitioned to work from home and then thinking about the housing market. So residents are moving, so that's really having disruptive impacts on the residential market. What's gotten less attention, right, is this retail piece. Retail is really closely tied to both of those locations too, right? So it's tied to where people live because most people take shopping trips that start from home. A lot of shopping trips start there. And so retail really likes to be close to where residents are to benefit from that access. And so if people are changing where they live, then retailers are going to be really drawn to follow them. But the second part of that is work locations. And if you're going down to the office all the time, you're often getting coffee on the way to work. You're going out to lunch to Chipotle with your friends. Maybe you're going out for afternoon or drinks or stopping by a restaurant with friends before you head home. And so if you're not going to the office as much, a lot of that retail tied to those work locations is also going to have a big disruption. And so this has pushed retail to also dramatically reorganize based on this work from home shock. And during the early days of the pandemic, we see that there were dramatic declines in both spending and actual existence of retail establishments, a big shock of people, cities lost people, cities also lost establishments. But they have really rebounded in a way, I think, that if we had conversation like this in the early parts of 2020, we would have thought, oh, like retail's really in trouble just based on how much spending was lost. But the actual decline in the number of establishments was much more moderate than that, that would have suggested at the time. And so actually, establishments overall are back to where they were in terms of the levels of number of establishments that existed. There's a lot of heterogeneity across space in that, like which cities are ever covered the most and which locations within cities. But retail is actually fairly vibrant. And some of that is driven by the fact that 
we had good government support programs during the pandemic that hopefully I think prevented a lot of closures. There were also lots of stimulus checks that people use to buy lots of goods. That's part of what's fueling inflation today, right? And so retail as a whole has come out fairly fine. It's just that where that retail is located, what kinds of retail has really thrived, has changed a lot because of this work from home shock. So this message that retail is back, if I think back to 2019, pre-COVID, pre the work from home shock, I feel like I would have heard a lot about how online shopping is really a threat to retail. In fact, like some of your own work has thought about this. How should I reconcile those two ideas? So I think the first thing to keep in mind for thinking about the online retail part of this, which is definitely important shock, although I think secondary, is that online retail is still a fairly small share of total retail. Prior to the pandemic, you should think about 10% of retail as being online. There was a big surge in that, obviously, during the pandemic. It's come down uh, substantially from that surge, but still about 14% now. So you think about a four percentage point increase over the last three years. Some of that would have happened anyway without COVID. And some of it, I think, is still extra because of COVID. And that has a lot of impacts on people's shopping as well. You know that this growth of retail since the rise of Amazon online has been really important, like the closure of lots of brick and mortar retail stores. And so some of that direct substitution as people adopted more online retail during the pandemic is probably likely also playing a role, but it's still a much smaller share of total retail. So it's not going to have the same sort of fundamental sort of sharp and large scale shock, the way people changing where they live and where they work is going to be. There are a couple of other important distinctions. I think they're a little more subtle. One is that online retail, as some of my other work shows, doesn't necessarily always lead to brick and mortar losers, right? If you have time back from shopping online, like if you switch from buying groceries in the store to buying groceries online, I have time to do something else. So my other work actually shows that you turn around and consume a lot more services like restaurants or coffee shops or personal care services with that time savings. And the retail that was adopted online during the pandemic is also really different from the kind of online retail growth that we saw during the previous two or three decades beforehand. You know, we're mostly talking about the replacement of a lot of goods purchases, but the pandemic online retail story is actually more a story about the adoption of online restaurant services and online grocery services. And unlike big box, durable and non-durable goods online retail, that kind of online service actually still requires brick and mortar establishments. You need a local restaurant to produce the meal, even if you're ordering it on Uber Eats. So you still, in many cases, need a local grocery store, even if you're getting your groceries through Instacart. So there's actually some suggestion, we go to it a little bit in the appendix of the, the paper, that online retail was slightly supportive of brick and mortar retail during the pandemic because of this unusual nature of what was actually growing during the pandemic in the online space. The other products just weren't as important in terms of their overall market penetration. And I sort of frame this as if you weren't already using Amazon by the time the pandemic started, the pandemic wasn't really any extra inducement to do that. Amazon had really achieved its full market penetration already. So that's great. I'll talk later about the implications of all this churn, both from work from home and from online retail. But let's dive into the analysis a little bit. Tell us a little bit about the kind of unusual data you're going to be looking at to analyze how retail has changed in the wake of work from home. Yeah, I'm happy to talk in as much detail as you'd like about the data because I'm a true uh, data nerd who just loves looking at columns of, of raw data all day long. So I've been working with my co-authors from the JP Morgan Chase Institute for nearly a decade now, I think almost eight years. And they have a great 
resource, which is the credit and debit card transactions, among others, uh, balance sheet information at their customers to study the way that retail markets are operating and, and shifting and changing. And some of that could be the online retail, like some of my previous work. And then in this piece, we're really focusing in on credit card transactions that support sort of like brick and mortar retail during the pandemic. And that's mainly like offline transactions, because that's what's happening at brick and mortar retail. And we're using it in a new way, right? We're using it to not just measure total spending of consumers, but actually where brick and mortar retail is physically located. So some of the fields that we see in our data are about the card terminal at which the transaction took place. So that includes information like the zip code of the terminal, a description of the business at the location, which could be something like, you know, Joe's Pizza. And the merchant category code that describes the product that's sold at that location. And so you have this mix of name, product, and zip code. And that can tell you like that there's an establishment, there's like an actual store there that somebody visited. And so in that way, you can almost use the customers of the bank as your own personal survey team that fans out across the city. And as they're doing their own shopping, they're actually building a picture of where brick and mortar retail is located. And we're going to use that information to back out what stores exist in different locations based on the presence of card activity that looks like a unique store. So this is a cool use of data that's basically coming out of J.P. Morgan Chase's everyday business. How do we know that the customers of J.P. Morgan Chase, i.e. the stores, are representative of the total universe of retail establishments? So the first thing we do is we focus on cities where Chase has a very large customer footprint. So you think about this as like the largest possible survey teams. And that tends to be in places where they have a, a giant sort of branch network. So they serve a huge portion of that local city customer base. And we focused on 16 cities that are the largest footprints for Chase. So this is places like New York, Phoenix, San Francisco, Houston, New Orleans. It's mostly the, the big cities and the ones we're missing are like Boston, Philadelphia. But other than that, we sort of have good representation across the board on these large cities. So we want to make sure that we have a huge customer base in each of those cities that can act as our surveyors that go across each of these neighborhoods. And then in addition to that, we're going to do some benchmarking to existing census data. So the census Every uh, year produces a look at where they think establishments are located, not just for retail, but for lots of industries. And they do this using a five-year economic census, and they update it in the in-between years with some extra surveys that try to understand, based on some administrative data, what organizations seem likely have changed where their establishments are located. And so we can use the fact that this is a publicly available data source available at the zip code level to say, do we generally agree in these 16 cities where we think we have a good customer base to act as our surveyors, we agree with them on where there are more or less of these different kinds of retail establishments. And in terms of levels, we do a really, really good job of, of matching this, in particular on products where we have good alignment in how we categorize different stores into specific products. So things like restaurants or groceries, there's a pretty clear alignment in the next classification used by census and the, and the one that's based on merchant category codes that we use. And we do a particularly good job on restaurants, which I think is because the census data that is being used is large largely based on payroll information. So if employees, you're going to be paying them and then you're going to report some of that payroll into the federal government as part of the tax monitoring and collection system. And most restaurants, indeed, 
have employees. And so we think that the reason we match so well in restaurants is because there's this payroll-based correspondence between us and the census. But other product types, like that kind of payroll is much less common. So think about corner bodegas or some person cutting hair in their living room, or maybe a farmer's market where you just have somebody selling homemade potholders. They are not the kind of retailer who's necessarily reporting in the kinds of data sets that would be tracked by the census's version of establishment tracking. And so for other products, we actually have a much bigger disagreement. And we think that that's mainly the reason, reason for that. Yeah, so the validation against the quote-unquote ground truth of the census business patterns is nice. Definitely like a necessary step, I feel like, when you're using these kinds of data, but I appreciated seeing it here. What's the bottom line here? Like, what do we get out of the car data that we can't get in the census zip business patterns? So the first most obvious thing that we get is really good granularity combined with high frequency and timeliness. So we can not only measure things that the zip code like the census can, but we can measure a panel out of quarterly frequency. We think that's a pretty good timescale for sort of capturing transactions that happen at both large and small merchants while still having this high frequency feature, whereas the best census products are basically available on a yearly measure. And then because this card data is generated automatically through this pipeline that the bank has, as soon as we have the data in hand, we could run this kind of panel and give you the most up-to-date possible view of what is the health of establishments? What kind of establishments are growing or, or exiting? And so next time there's some kind of crisis and we would like to have a good up-to-date view of this kind of, of retail activity, we could give a much more immediate answer than these much more slow and ponderous sort of survey collection uh, methods because this kind of data generated by customers is coming in all the time. And then I'll just refer back to the fact that we have a different view right on establishments. And when you have this consumption-based view, then you're going to pick up different things than the kind of payroll-based stuff. So our view reflects the kinds of retail amenities that people actually experience rather than one that's based on where people are working. So for example, one of the biggest places where we have disagreement with the census is the zip code in San Francisco, where the famous ferry building is located. And I don't know if you've ever visited or, or heard about this, but it's just on the Embarcadero. It has all these small internal merchants, kind of like an internal farmer's market. And then in the summer, it also hosts a, a super large outdoor farmer's market. And many of those retailers, that's not necessarily a place where they're going to record employment on official statistics, but it is a place where people transact and every merchant that has a square terminal plugged into the end of their phone, that's somebody that we can see in our data. So it's really a reflection of actually the retail availability that people experience. Yeah, that's a nice illustration of the virtue of the bank data. Okay, so data hand, tell me what do you find? Right, so we find that work from home is having a really dramatic effect on the growth and location and composition of, of retail across and within cities. So first we see that just as people are more likely to be moving to the Sunbelt and the suburbs and away from sort of high cost coastal cities and downtowns, that retailers are exactly doing the same thing. And you may not find this terribly surprising, but it's actually a big departure from pre-pandemic patterns of where retail was looking, especially across cities. So before the pandemic, places like New York and San Francisco were already losing population but they were still experiencing very strong establishment growth in general. And that's because even if you're losing some population, the population that you're still gaining are these high-income, high-education, high-discretionary spending individuals who are still going to be able to support 
and grow a big retail base. But it's now that kind of resident who's the one that's moving. And so you're actually seeing a much bigger following of population during this post-pandemic period than you would have observed in the data in the year prior. But then within cities, apparently the bigger sort of migration move, people moving from downtowns into the suburbs and establishments are exactly tracking that. But there's a lot of variation within that. Would you like me to go into more detail about that now or do you want to prompt a question? No, that's great. I had a question about sort of disentangling a little bit of the causality here. So do the data show that these shifts are attributable to work from home or are they occurring contemporaneous with work from home? And I ask because in addition to obviously the surge in remote work, there's a householder boom. There's a lot of pent up demand among millennials, for example, to not just form households, but add floor area and basically take life steps that were facilitated in part by work from home, but also low interest rates and just sort of good timing and so forth. So I wonder if you're seeing more Chipotle receipts in the suburbs than the central city, how do we disentangle these different causes? Well, one point of clarification to make is that we're not just observing sort of more Chipotle receipts, but we're observing that there's like a new Chipotle in a location. So there's definitely this thing that's right up in like people have more money from the stimulus payments or people have a higher demand for a bigger house. But that would not necessarily be wrapped up in changing the location of where the retail is physically located. So I think it's a little bit distinct from some of those forces that you're talking about there, although that that definitely gives us some external validity context, which I think is right to wonder, like if we were doing this in a recession, would you have observed the same thing and and maybe not as strong of growth in some of the most recent quarters in our data? The second thing I would say is that we do try to do a little bit of a decomposition in the paper with a simple OLS regression, where we're going to measure the pre-pandemic exposure of different neighborhoods to work from home through both the residents in that location that work in those industries that are most likely to transition to work from home and based on the jobs located in those zip codes for workers that are most likely to transition to work from home. And a lot of other people have used this kind of measure directly as an instrument in the work from home literature. And here we're sort of using it as a basic first stage, just saying if you had more pre-pandemic exposure to this work from home, either through residents or jobs, did you see higher or lower establishment growth in those particular neighborhoods? And we can see a really strong effect of being a high work from home exposure neighborhood. The highest effect comes from having lots of residents who transition to work from home. And then it's sort of second order, although still a big effect if you had a lot of jobs. So this is sort of all about pre-pandemic exposure and wouldn't have anything wrapped up in it about other pandemic effects that were taking place during the last two years. For me, it kind of makes sense that retail establishments are following population around, especially the high-income population that migrated in response to work from home. The bar for evidence here is a little bit lower. I guess the alternative story, Greg, that you might have in mind is that there's these possible virtuous circle effects where the composition or the scale of retail amenities in a particular location then goes on to attract even more people or certain groups. And certainly like that's a little bit been the narrative and some of the recent work on gentrification in the last couple decades in U.S. central cities. This question for Lindsay, am I wrong to discount the possibility of a reverse causation here? We do stop the panel at the end of 2021. So Q4 of 2021 is the last month we include or quarter we include precisely for this reason is that the longer that you allow this to go on, the more you're going to start to have 
these other endogenous responses start to come into play, right? But we think that this sort of short two-year window gives us the best time to make the argument that it's it's really a short, sharp shock that's mostly about work from home and that you haven't had these other sort of features. Okay, now these suburbs have become more attractive and so more people are going to move there, which is unrelated to work from home, but actually related to the fact that you just have more restaurants in the suburbs. I definitely think that's going to play out as part of the long-term impact of this. But in the short run, I think it's mostly going to be a direct impact of work from home. That's really helpful for me. Tell me if I'm understanding this correctly. So one question would be, how do we distinguish the type of change that you're describing, observing in this data from a general kind of suburbanization shock? Why do we slapping a remote work label on it as opposed to just a general centrifugal label? And it sounds like one reason we might think it's work from home related is you're actually interacting, obviously the card data, but also with the work from home exposure data on what people's occupations are based on where they live. And that shows a disproportionate concentration of either new establishments or higher transactions in areas that are near people who you would assume would be more likely to work from home. Yeah, that's right. And we include other sort of fixed effects and neighborhood controls that try to take hold fix some of those sort of uh, longer term trends that you're getting at, trying to stay conditional on those neighborhood features, what is happening in the data. And one interesting thing that gives me a little bit of comfort is that once you control for the work from home exposure through both residents and jobs and some basic other features of the neighborhood during this two year window that we study, there's basically no impact of just distance from the center on the establishment growth. So like over this two-year window, most of what's going on, I think, is this work from home thing once you condition on some basic neighborhood features. One thing I noticed, or I thought that I noticed when I was scrutinizing the figures and tables in your paper, was that establishment growth seemed to underperform population growth, both in places where population was declining, like in center cities, and in places where our population was growing, like in suburban or exurban location. Is this a story just about the short time window of the analysis and it taking longer to adjust? Or are there other factors that you think might be in play? So I think the shorter time window is absolutely going to be part of the answer, right? So uh, to give context, we say in our paper that if you have a one percentage point increase in population in a zip code, then you would expect about 0.3 percentage points more established growth. So it's not one-to-one. It's you know pretty far under that, but still a substantial adjustment. But yeah, it's a short-term two-year effect. And so there are very mobile establishments in that two-year window. You think like your pop-up stores, your food trucks, your farmer's markets, a lot of restaurants to be able to move in that frequency but there are other kinds of retail that's much more durable, like big box stores. You have to build like a new building. You have to have new supply infrastructure. That kind of stuff is not going to necessarily be able to move in that kind of window. And in addition to that, what could also be going on here is the fact that we are measuring this during the work from home phase. So, you know, we're experiencing a lot of changes in people's consumption behaviors And we know that work from home is going to be a part of that because we're changing where we live and where we work. And so if you have a lot of residents who are likely to be transitioned to work from home in our analysis, then that really moderates about 80% of the effect of extra population, right? So that comes from the fact that if you are now working from home, you may not just go not go out as often to interact with the local environment. Maybe you don't go 
pick up flowers on the way to work or stop by the bookstore. And so a lot of these kinds of trips that rely on you just like generally leaving the house may never take place. And if you were somebody who used to get lunch down by the office, go to Chipotle, but now you work from home, like maybe you go to Chipotle in the suburbs, but maybe even more likely than that, you just stay home and make a sandwich. Like that's just much easier to do when you're at home. And so I think the link between population growth and establishment growth going forward is just going to be much weaker in this post-pandemic period because of this work from home flavor. This is a good point in our conversation, maybe to talk a little bit more about some of the implications of the patterns that you're reporting. I think the main headline result here is the decentralization of retail, right? So retail that once served large daytime office populations, downtowns, has declined. Retail serving office workers who are now working from their homes in the suburbs seems to have increased. Is this just a story of reallocation? What are some of the other implications that I might be worried about? So the first order implication that I am worried about is access to jobs in the retail space. So retail is disproportionately going to be drawing workers from the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum or from more minority workers, and they tend to live in downtown areas. If you now have a bunch of retail that's relocating from downtown to the suburbs, those kinds of workers may not be able to have as easy access to those jobs. There's this great paper by Conrad Miller at Berkeley Haas, which looked at the effects of establishments moving to the suburbs during the wave of suburbanization. And he found that there was a really big impact on the Black-white wage graph from that movement precisely through this mechanism. And so you could also think that something similar might play out with this kind of work from home phenomenon with lots of retail jobs moving to the suburbs. So I'm pretty concerned about that. Also because we know that these kinds of households find it much more difficult to move to the suburbs in the first place, right? If you're a lower income or minority, there's all this existing legacy of exclusion from housing and mortgage markets. We have single family zoning that often makes housing in the suburbs inaccessible to lower income households. So it's really important for us to think about ways that we might mitigate the impact on the Black-white wage gap and employment gap we might expect from this kind of phenomenon. Right. So there's a job access and racial equity angle, which I appreciate. Maybe there's also climate implication here too, right? We're moving jobs from transit-rich downtowns to places where you need to have a car to access those job opportunities. And it's very difficult to build public infrastructure in the suburbs. And then, of course, there's the fact that we have this already existing problem of just access to retail amenities for many of these households, right? The classic discussion being about food deserts, right? Well, if you have a bunch of amenities now that are moving to the suburbs and making the amenities downtown worse, you're losing access to jobs and you're also losing access to retail amenities that might also be exacerbated by this. Let me pitch another potential doom scenario here which is in part inspired by this other recent review paper by Gilles Jarantone and Jesse Hanbury, and in part inspired by some of my own experience working in downtown Philadelphia. So the idea being that there's some agglomeration benefits to retail establishments, restaurant benefits when it's located in a restaurant district because a consumer who's hungry knows that they can find a meal to eat. So by agglomerating together, you get a restaurant district like Chinatown, Philadelphia's downtown, where there's a wide variety of places to eat. And maybe that kind of agglomeration 
is a factor in increasing total welfare. And you remove the office population, you remove the demand, and the economies of density are no longer so great. So you see some restaurants exit. That reduces quality of life in the center city, which leads to, as we were referencing before, which actually makes the downtown less attractive place to live. So maybe you get into this vicious cycle where not only is downtown a worse place to live, but in terms of the aggregate economy, you've actually reduced the set of available consumption opportunities, those sort of special, really unique kinds of restaurants that are really only available in downtowns where you have sort of like large daytime population to support it and are hard to sort of economically justify in a kind of a lower demand environment in suburbs. I think you're absolutely right to be concerned about that. I might even layer a little bit on that worries about production effects of these kinds of loss of retail amenities. There's this great paper by David Atkin that actually shows in San Francisco that these sort of startup tech firms were willing to patent together if they had been observed using cell phone data in local coffee shops, right? So like these kinds of retail environments are actually important for fostering meetings between people to generate these kinds of knowledge billovers that generate innovation, uh, in the local economy, if you just can't support retail and those kinds of employment clusters, might have this extra knock-on effect, not just the consumption, but the production. So I think it's right to have those discussions about being worried about that. But I sometimes feel like the discussion gets a little bit too caught up in the doom loop of, of work from home. I think what's possible in the longer run is that we see different kinds of employment and different kinds of industries moving into downtown locations that Downtowns could actually be centers that are much more focused on residents and providing resident-based amenities than has been true in the past. And so what you could see is over time that cities actually rely even more on consumption benefits of these kinds of retail amenities that you're serving not daytime office populations, but you're serving a much wider set of residential populations through things like restaurants. So I, I find it um, entirely plausible, maybe even more plausible that in the long run, we actually have bigger restaurant districts and more of them in downtown locations if we're going to be serving more of a residential population. So I think those two things are important to sort of counterbalance each other. I wonder if you could speak to a little bit of this reallocation. I don't know if the data is there yet, but yeah, so let's take the example of retail in a central, in a downtown district. I used to work in the MetLife building above Grand Central, and there were shoeshine people there. There were watch repair businesses. There were all these hyper-local businesses that you, you would really only go to if you worked in one of a handful of adjacent buildings. And you would just go there, drop your stuff for an hour or whatever, and come back. And I have to imagine that type of business is struggling right now. And maybe not even reallocating to the suburbs. If you're talking about shoe shining, for example, that those there's some evidence anyway that dry cleaners and, and shoe shiners and so forth, there's just less of that. So if that might show up though as a reduction in establishments or in transactions in a central city, but it wouldn't really affect most people who live in central cities. It would affect the employees of those businesses, but they might, especially given the strength of the economy, they might reallocate to other businesses. So do we have a sense from the data here about how those businesses are reallocating within central cities? We track in our data, not just what's happening with aggregate retail establishments, but what's happening 
within specific product categories. And because we're using card data, we focus on the types of products that are well represented on cards. So we track things like restaurants and groceries and clothing and personal care services like salons or, or dry cleaners, but we don't speak to things like automobiles or education, right? That's just not something that you see well on cards. But we can see within this sort of subclass of product categories that we think we track well, a big difference across some particular product categories in this sort of downtown versus suburban relocation pattern. So groceries are following people really succinctly and has nothing to do with how work from home exposed through residents or jobs, local neighborhood is, they're really able to follow people. So regardless of whether or not you're home, you still go to the grocery store, right? But other product categories have really struggled to come back at all. This would be particularly things like clothing or those personal care services. And the best illustration I think of this for myself is actually what I was doing during the pandemic, which was mostly programming in my yoga pants. And I didn't cut my hair for two years. And that's exactly what is reflected in the data. Like people are not hoarding clothing stores, like clothing stores are not following people to the suburbs and salons are not following people to the suburbs. And that's exactly the kind of demand that you would just think might be in aggregate reduced in a more work from home environment. I think that's really interesting. It kind of links up with something that you said earlier in the conversation about how internet retail or the availability of buying things online interacts differently with different types of retail establishments. So for example, Instacart still requires local grocery stores. And that kind of reminded me of that Gaspar and Glazer article from 25 years ago, information technology in the future of cities, where they talk about how people who are more linked by technology, right, are are actually more likely to have thicker local networks, and there's more likely to be more local activity, they posit, because of that interconnectivity. It sounds like you're positing something similar in the sense that for some retail establishments like grocery stores, that's the case. And then for others, the change in demand is just overwhelms other factors. Yeah, absolutely. And the other winners besides grocery stores would be the kinds of things that exactly link to the sort of general consumption of these leisure-based services. So things like vets we see growing a lot and daycares in the suburbs, and that would tend to follow people regardless of whether or not you're work from home. And then other kinds of leisure-based activities, things like gyms or movie theaters, bowling alleys, these kinds of outlets when you just have more time because you're not commuting or because you're doing more consumption online would allow you to go out and spend that time doing. So this big reallocation towards services that's coming from work from home exactly ties in with this sort of larger parking technology story about a move towards these time-intensive amenities as part of people's everyday lives in a, in a more robust way. So we had Stein Van Neuberg on recently to talk about how offices are responding to work from home. And he stressed the importance for landlords and for policymakers to be experimenting to try to adapt to the work from home shock. If I'm a landlord with a lot of downtown retail space, or if I'm a policymaker who has interests in the health or the future of downtown, what kinds of things should I be thinking about in terms of adapting to this shock? Well, the first thing that this great question brings to mind is that there's a big discussion of uh, mandating return to the office in some cities, especially like D.C., where the federal government has some latitude to mandate return to office and to support some of these retail businesses through this kind of employment link. I think that that is a very bad idea. (laughs) 
I mean, first, because you might be losing some of the major productivity gains to some firms and workers through work from home, which is just bad in terms of overall economic growth, but it might be severely misguided and ineffective. What seems much better is to support changing land use towards the new productive activities that are likely to take place in those downtown locations. As I was alluding to earlier, I don't think there's any reason to think that for most cities, what you're going to see is a a death of the city. What you're going to see is different kinds of firms moving into these downtown spaces and more residents likely to live in these downtown locations. You should allow retail to change to serve those populations. Now, what I do think is sort of a danger is landlords being slow to recognize this new reality and reluctant to either lower rents or refurbish their spaces to make this change. I was studying some of the data for Chicago recently to write up a problem set for my students. And I was looking at the latest vacancy and rent data. And I noticed that the vacancies were through the roof, but landlords asking rents had hardly budged, right? And I think that's a reflection of unwillingness to recognize that you probably need to lower some of these rents and some of these buildings and wanting to sustain high vacancy rates by hopefully waiting for some tenant that will come in. But that's actually very bad for cities to allow these sort of very long-term extended vacancies if that actually is a space that needs to be adapted to some sort of different use. There are some proposals and some implementations of vacancy taxes in some cities, but I think a vacancy tax on any vacancy is is not great. There's actually a lot of evidence that some vacancy is, is desirable to get optimal matching between landlords and tenants. But extended vacancies, I think, are the ones that we should be really focusing on taxing heavily. And then there's probably a big call to subsidize some of the redevelopment and change in the build out of particular buildings that help to adapt buildings to these kinds of new use, whether that's the office or the retail space. I like that answer. It is a very economisty answer. <laughs> Let the market work to adapt it to people's preferences, right? But I'll take that. I think your paper, as well as that comment, really encapsulate something that I think is really important here and it's been kind of missing from this discussion, which is there's been a lot of focus on work from home. And then there's been a focus on knock-on effects for cities and for real estate. But you know, your focus here is is on the consumer side, consumption side, and it's really sort of everything from home, right? It's streaming instead of if going to the movie theater. It's of course ordering online instead of going to the store. You're looking at the spatial reallocation of consumption in a way that I think is really valuable. And liberalizing land use. That's kind of our unofficial slogan <laughs> here on Density Speaking. So. <laughs> I'm happy to sign on to that mission statement. <laughs> All right, Lindsay, what else should our listeners know about your work here or the future of retail in general? One thing that I think is important for the urban economists out there who are studying cities and, and building models of cities is that there's a very high willingness to just assume a way that retail amenities change in a location, especially over a short time horizon, right? You have all these spatial models, people are choosing where to live and where to work, and they have some fixed effect that they call neighborhood amenity that doesn't change over different kinds of welfare counterfactuals, Right. And I think that this really shows that these amenities can change in substantial ways and at very short time horizons. And so incorporating these kinds of endogenous amenities into the effects of different kinds of shocks to cities is actually a really important thing to do. And there are a couple of new papers that are just starting to do this. Melina Almargo has one with a co-author 
that I think is now R&R at Econometrica that is a great example of how to do this. And that's why I would encourage everybody to think more concretely about how to incorporate this into a wider class of models, because I think it's really important for modeling cities. The second thing that I think is really important to keep in mind is that there are a lot of general land use policies that I think speak to both moderating the negative effects of the work from home shock and to supporting sort of what could ultimately be positive benefits. So pushing to reduce the single family zoning in the suburbs and allowing more multifamily use, pushing to allow sort of mixed use developments would just make our cities both more robust to these kinds of shocks and lower the negative consequences to either the workers or the firms that are trying to respond to that. So just a point that's sort of emphasizing the push to allow more more flexible land use. Fantastic. Thank you, Lindsay Relahan, for joining us and telling us about your research on the impact of working home on brick and mortar retail. It was absolutely my pleasure. Great. Okay, so now is the point in our show where we give recommendations for our listeners. Call these the appendices. Lindsay, what's your appendix for this week? My appendix relates to the fact that one of my other great loves besides urban economics is science fiction. Anybody who knows me well knows that I read a lot of science fiction in my downtime. And I think that in general, science fiction does a good job of incorporating a lot of interesting economics like thinking how technology might change the economy or imagining different sort of economic systems. But in general, I think science fiction does a very poor job of incorporating some of the economics in urban economics, like how worlds should be built to reflect the forces of, of how people interact across space or how firms and workers would sort of co-agglomerate. And I think the worst offender here is actually the Hunger Games, which I'm a big fan of, but I think it's sort of ridiculous to have 12 specialized districts that are all far apart from each other. That's a very inefficient and high-risk way of organizing activities across space. But there are two that I think actually do a pretty interesting job of this that I'd like to recommend to everybody who's also a science fiction fan. One is the Silo series by Hugh Howie, which has just recently been made into a TV series by Amazon. In this book, without going into too much detail, people live in underground silos because of some sort of post-apocalyptic outcomes. And it's basically a perfect illustration of the hoteling model in a vertical space. I really like the way that he does a really good job of allocating different land uses across the levels of this internal silo. And a lot of that facial organization drives some of the plot. And then the second recommendation I have for science fiction urban econ nerds is the Mars trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson, who imagines how we might settle and terraform Mars. And so as the series progresses, they're doing a lot of city building and a lot of where cities are located and how they're organized, I think, is in line with a lot of basic urban economics. Like there's a big city that's located around the space elevator. And so it's sort of a spatial port city. And then because of the gravity of Mars, they're able to build these superstructures that would not be possible on Earth's gravity. So I just really like the way that he spends a lot of time thinking through how some of these basic urban economics principles would be different in a terraformed Mars. Fantastic recommendations. It, it reminds me of this old post by Matt Iglesias from 15 years ago, commenting on how in sci-fi, sometimes they get the urban econ relevant numbers wrong. And so the classic example of this in Matt's post is um, 
the population density of Trantor, the, the capital of the Galactic Empire and the Foundation series, is something like 40 billion people in 75 million square miles. And so what Asimov means is this city world, right, where everyone's just stacked on top of each other. But if you do the math, you realize it's about 600 people per square mile which is approximately the population density of the modern day UK. There's a little bit of a numeracy sometimes that I appreciate your recommendations. I'm trying to think about urban econ in sci-fi. Great. Greg, what's your appendix this week? Okay, so this is less fun, but there's an article in the Wall Street Journal. It's actually on July 4th. The headline is Remote Work Sticks for All Kinds of Jobs. And the subhead is Lower Income, Less Educated and Service Workers are all clocking more work from home hours than before the pandemic hit. And I think, you know, one layer to this whole work from home conversation has been about class and sort of who is more likely to have a job that can be done from home, sometimes expressed in terms of, you know, occupational exposure to work from home, and then, you know, knock on effects, for example, for retail establishments and so forth, all very important. At the same time, I think we're seeing, and, and this is comes out in the reporting, which is based on some different data sources, that there's kind of a broadening and deepening of at least hybrid work. So not seeing it as a binary, but as a continuum where people work some hours from home and how that's increasing for a lot of occupations, including ones that don't require as much education, ones that don't pay as well, and some that are not obvious. I mean, just to give a, a personal example, my wife is a critical care doctor. You would think of that as the prototypical cannot be done remotely kind of a job. And for the care that she delivers, that is absolutely the case. They, they don't have robots or anything that she can just sit at home and operate. But outside of the actual care that she administers, right? They have departmental meetings, they have various other types of meetings and trainings and so forth. And a lot of that has moved to virtual and has stuck. And so I think that's an example of this story in the journal about how the impact is broader and deeper. And I'm not sure we've kind of considered that. We've been thinking about impacts on offices, cities, and so forth. But I almost think the social and sociological impact is going to be perhaps even greater. So it's an interesting article. So interesting. The sort of task-based division rather than sort of job-based division, I think is the right way to do it. But I don't actually know how to measure the task-based one in sort of a large-scale way. I don't know if anybody could do it. Yeah, that's really interesting, Greg. Thanks for sharing. So my appendix for this week is actually from a recent book by Henry Graybar called Pay Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. Uh, there's a hook to today's topic. The hook is that cities are different from suburbs. And there's one passage in the book where Graybar is describing some of the parking regulations in and around Detroit, drawing on some of the work by you know, the preeminent scholar of parking in America, Don Shoup. He's listing some of these parking regulations. So there's a requirement for one off-street parking space for every tumbling apparatus at a tumbling center, employee at a youth hostel, pool table in a pool hall, two employees in an emergency cell shelter, six seats in a stadium, church, chapel, mosque, synagogue, or temple, every 100 square feet in an armory, substance abuse facility, assembly hall, beauty shop, and golf course or golf course clubhouse, 150 square feet in a courthouse or customs office. 200 square feet in a bank, laundromat, or medical marijuana caregiver center, 200 square feet of water in a swimming pool, 
400 square feet in a library, museum, ice skating rink, or aquarium. So one point of this passage is just to illustrate how arbitrary, yet very precise, these zoning prescriptions are for retail land use. And the quote from Shoup on this is, a breathtaking combination of extreme precision and statistical and state significance. So I like that passage. I liked the book overall, which I think is an amazing synthesis of history, of economics, of policy, and of a bunch of journalistic vignettes for how parking policy is affecting people across the country. So that's my recommendation. I believe there's a 99% Invisible podcast about this as well. We're allowed to plug another podcast, but that's where I heard about it. Fantastic. Plugging the competition, Lindsay. <laughs> it's a compliment. I'm totally joking. <laughs> I think that's interesting. And uh, you know, parking regulation is a great example of a legal regulation that does not have to survive cost-benefit analysis. Cost-benefit analysis is not part of any judicial evaluation of that kind of a mandate, which is actually in contrast to some other, basically the entire federal regulatory state, when they adopt new regulations, they have to conduct, if it's a serious regulation, they have to conduct a cost-benefit analysis. And then that defines the terrain on which the reasonableness of the regulation will be litigated. And so there's kind of a, an interesting literature on whether we really want judges assessing the robustness of a cost-benefit analysis. But you know that is a pass-the-smell test kind of a thing that has to happen so that a regulatory cost can be evaluated. That's not really true for local government rules. That's how it works for federal administrative regulations. But if you're talking about the city of Detroit or a suburb adopting a parking mandate, it's almost an insuperable bar to get that overturned in a court of law for imposing unreasonable costs. It's just really bad or really costly policy. Fascinating. I learned something new today. Thanks, Eric. Trying to earn the law place in, in this <laughs> podcast here. Thanks for listening to today's show. For Lindsay Relahan and Greg Schill, I'm Jeff Lynn. Our producer is Courtney Campbell. Check the show notes for links to the articles that we discussed on the show. Let us know what you think of today's show on Twitter or perhaps whatever successor social media network we're all on these days. The show's handle is at Densely Speaking. If you don't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, the views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated.